Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Yumna Kassab. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. Now, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands, and that treaty has never been made with the First Nations. Yumna Kassab is a writer from Western Sydney. Her work's been featured in Kill Your Darlings, Mianjin, and the Sydney Morning Herald, amongst many others. Her debut book is the critically acclaimed and much prize listed The House of Yusuf. And today, Yumna is joining us on the podcast with her debut novel, Australiana. Australiana writes itself into the fabric of modern Australia. In a town of drought and flood, the people have learned to ebb and flow with the whims of nature. Where every face is familiar, it's in the details that the stories of life and death occur. Australiana takes a reader to the towns where we live and explores the voices that populate each corner. Join me as we discover Yumna Kassab's Australiana. Welcome, Yumna. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited for this chat. And I'm really excited to be chatting about Australiana with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in feet first here. Australiana melds diverse voices and styles. It's spread across time, but is constrained in the space around the region of northern New South Wales, particularly surrounding Tamworth. I'm going to have to acknowledge that this is not an easy-to-categorise novel, and I'm really curious about how you introduce Australiana to people. Well, I think that... I have been thinking about this now that the book has been published and it's in a physical form. Um, I tend to not really set off with too much of a plan when when I'm actually writing and the best, best time to actually think about the book is once it's actually done, it's sort of compiled. Uh, I Australiana does say that it's a novel on the front. Um, I prefer to think of it as an ecosystem or as a cycle. Um, the you know the first part, which is called the town, is the structure is taken from the thousand and one nights where you know one story ends, the next begins. You know, or there's a symbol carried across, or you know, it's a person. Um, and the idea is it really kind of cycles around the town. I've recently been saying it's actually an ecosystem because in science, I teach, you know, high school science. When we teach ecosystems, it's essentially a community in a particular area and you take into account both the living and the non-living factors. And so within Australiana, it's obviously the, you know, the human inhabitants, it's also the animals, it's the vegetation And then on the non-living side, you have, you know, the natural events such as bushfire, drought, floods, um, also water, which is a pretty big thread throughout the book, um, and also the temperature and other things. So I really think of Australiana more than anything as an ecosystem. The, I mean, I'm I'm just like... Little aside, straight away, I, I, if if I could love the book anymore, I think you've just given me a reason to. And my my wife, who studies posthumanist philosophy, I think would love the way you've just described that because that really kind of taps into 
those ideas of of the way um, we as humans we have this natural tendency it seems to to make ourselves uh, primary in any space we find ourselves in when realistically we are a part as you say of an ecosystem and um, not the if we if we borrow a novelistic type of uh, language not the main character but merely a part of a past of char- cast of characters that includes that natural environment I what a wonderful description thank you. Yeah, I think that um, it's a lot easier in a city to escape um, natural events or, you know, things such as, you know, the temperature can be controlled a lot more. Um, We have a lot more control over our environment. Well, if you're living outside of the cities and, you know, even before my move to Tamworth, I had spent a lot of time outside of the cities and even in Lebanon, you know, the family, it's a sort of farming farming, community. environment that it's quite hard to escape the sort of natural environment and that sort of real interconnectedness between all elements that make up the ecosystem. I wanted to also ask as we begin about the name. Australiana seems to evoke a kind of almost a nationalistic kitsch. I imagine Henry Lawson and Dorothea McKellar kicking the footy while Banjo Patterson burns sausages on the barbie. How did you land on this title and, and what did you want it to speak to its reader? Yeah, it wasn't actually the working title and generally when I'm writing something, I tend to have my titles quite early on, but with this one, Australiana came quite late. The working title was actually My Face is Nameless, which is the second part of the book because I do feel that there's an element of namelessness to places that we're not actually familiar with and so but the I didn't think that that really captured all the different parts so in the back of my mind I was hunting around for a sort of different title and I do really like very deceptive titles um you know the project after Australiana is called The Lovers and you know a title like that people might think it's going to be a sweet little love story and it's definitely not and same thing with Australiana but the title um is actually a reference to um Don Delillo's first book, which is uh, called Americana. And in one of his interviews, what he said was that um, it was calling his book Americana was a statement of artistic intent that he intended to write about everything to do with his country. And similarly, it's my statement of artistic intent to write, you know, all parts of Australia. Is there a sense, I use the word kitsch there, which is such a, it's such a loaded word, but I feel in a very real way, uh, the way you address space, the way you address, uh, I guess, individuality and community, you both kind of tap into this um, mythologized idea of, of what Australia is, could be. And I, I might just add there, so, so-called Australia, the, the, the country that is 250 years old, not the land that is 60,000 years old, but this, this modern idea of Australia, you tap into it and kind of... Uh, wheedle away at it you you show us that it's not all um a glossy advertisement on um you know on a a a travelogue that is trying to get you to visit it is a real place and these things uh these are real people and real events yeah i i think that um i was actually typing and editing these stories when i was doing a big trip through South America and, you know, I really like travel and one of the things that really interests me is how a country 
presents itself and how it's also seen outside. You know, there are obviously, you know, when us Australians go abroad, I'm pretty sure people do mention, you know, kangaroos and koalas. And it's a bit of a stereotype about the country because there's obviously a lot more to Australia and similarly to any country than the couple of little stereotypes. And I suppose what is very fascinating for me is how that sort of mythology or that sort of uh, symbolism that is associated with a country actually comes about. And I did want to, in some ways, actually contribute to the mythology of the country to just add a little bit. I don't think any one work or any, you know, one painting is actually going to represent anything as broad and as nuanced as a country. But I think this was my attempt to just, you know, fill in one little bubble within that whole thing. And within the ecosystem of the book, and I'm going to keep using the the term that you've <laughs> given me there because it just it is so so evocative. Within the ecosystem of the book, we have this interplay between character and place and environment and natural events. You dedicate the book for the Tamworth crew, and I know you lived in that region for I think you said three years before. There's so much carefully observed detail here. I wondered. Just on a personal note, how did you feel watching the recent rain and the impacts that it had? I know Tamworth perhaps wasn't as impacted as, as other towns further north, but the impacts that it sort of had on that northern New South Wales region. Yeah, I in, in the book, um, I know in the time that I was living in Tamworth, well, the drought was the main thing, but in the book there are bushfires, and this was written well before those really disastrous bushfires of 2019-2020. And um, there must have been some sort of flooding event or maybe it was in the conversation. But I think that, um, you know, there seem to be a lot more extreme um, weather events and they are really affecting people's lives. And the thing for me that was very interesting with Australiana and actually being in Tamworth was just the, you know, the sheer extent of the drought and also the sort of oblivion in the cities to how deeply, you know, the drought was affecting these communities that a lot had actually run out of water. And now when I actually think about, you know, the floods or even the bushfires, um, you know, for most of that time, you know, I was overseas and it was, you know, there was a great feeling of helplessness um, to know that, you know, so many people had been really displaced by, you know, these massive uh, you know, unprecedented events and being unable to actually do that, um, unable to do anything about that. So I don't know. I think there is um, a piece in the book called The News of the Day and this man is, you know, watching this tsunami, I think, uh, that strikes Japan and there's this sort of like distance from it. And, you know, it was definitely a theme that or definitely it played on my mind that, you know, there's these things happening off there and we're quite distance quite distant from them and actually trying to capture them. Mm. I want to keep going on this idea and I want to I also want to try and evoke a little bit of the way the the ecosystem of each story interplays and feeds off the other because there is a flood in the book and we see it through the, the desire for rain and then the fr- then in another story the frustration that because of the ongoing drought the land is just not simply ready for that much rain it can't absorb the rain houses are flooded um, a, a woman who has a much loved couch 
um, is frustrating the hell out of her family and then the couch gets run down river and then it's uh, discovered at another point by a person who decides that this is a lovely place to sit. Um, and this, this happens across a sort of a half dozen or more stories. And I was very curious about the different viewpoints and also how how maybe you view this really tense coexistence of people and nature in areas, um, you know, really Australia-wide, where I guess our civilization has been imposed on nature. These, these disasters, in part, happen because we are in the way of a natural event. Yeah, I think that um, the human activity um, has a very big effect on the environment and not just in the very obvious ways. Um, I remember chatting to one of my friends in Tamworth and she was referencing a documentary to do with a national park in the US and something to do with wolves. And the idea is if you eliminate the wolves, well, okay, you know, there's no wolves present, but the actual effect of the wolves is that because, you know, the other animals now have a predator, they have to move. There's all these other sort of downstream effects of having the wolves there um, that aren't necessarily very, very obvious. And so the thing also with, with the floods and with the drought, it's not just about, okay, we need rain. Um, we need the rain to actually you know, seep into the ground and stay where we need it to. But there are also these other things that we're actually doing which are really preventing that from happening. So, for example, you know, if we're talking about riverbeds, if they're very, very eroded, you know, the water is moving really quickly, which is not what you actually want because, you know, you get these massive amounts of sudden rain and sudden water and it's moving through a riverbed, but it's not actually staying and so the actual plants and vegetation are not actually really soaking up that water so it's i think the thing that is quite interesting is to look at say one little event and then just you know how it's sort of there's this sort of ripple effect from this one seemingly pretty small thing it's and and I, I think I've heard of that documentary as well, and it immediately brought to mind. I think the idea was that without the wolves, all the hard-hoofed animals had no natural predator, and that that erosion of the it immediately brought to mind the situation in Australia with brumbies, and of course, not terribly far from where much of this book is set is the Guy Fawkes River National Park, where they've they've got a similar situation at hand because the brumbies have no natural predator, and the the way that these, as you say, these small changes in an ecosystem ripple out. And that, I'm going to use that, I hope this is a good segue, um, into your styling of Australiana. You um, you mentioned before styling, particularly around um, the structure of A Thousand and One Nights, where one uh, one story leads into another. I, I didn't pick up on that, but I did notice the way each story echoes throughout you use small details they're almost like talismans that link individuals through narratives so for an arc there is there's a jumper that links a death and uh, that that links to an op shop and that links through a young family who are having difficulties it also felt to me what i what i was picking up on was the way a community creates links through kind of almost local idiosyncratic references you know someone might say oh yeah did you hear about john you go john footy john or, or blue ford john you know, everyone has these small idiosyncratic links. But I, I wondered if you could reflect a little bit more on on that linking and the way that structures a much larger narrative in Australiana. 
Yeah, I think that, um, and this occurs also in the first book, The House of Yusuf. Um, I think if we're to tell the story of a community and to sort of get at the variety and the diversity within any community, I don't think that a chaptered novel and a straight narrative is going to be able to achieve that variety of perspective. Um, I am greatly interested in the sort of interconnection um, in many different ways. Um, You know, I'm very interested in, you know, people's relationships and also how very, very small events can have very big um, uh, impacts. It's definitely there in the first book it's going to be in you know other other stories it's probably a little obsession of mine but I think that at the end of the day in terms of structuring I do greatly believe that the story has a form that is going to be natural to it and it's my job as a writer or as a scribe I really see myself as that as a scribe to actually just capture it in the form that is best suited to it and so I use the example of um, speed dating which is you know four lines it's not a long story Um, you know some people might actually think that that could be expanded into a much larger story but sometimes four lines is enough and I think that if we're to consider all of uh, literature and all of storytelling, you know, there is a very big place for things such as fairy tales, um, fables, anecdotes. Um, yeah, and it's definitely those are sort of forms that I quite love and I, especially fables. Um, I think it's a, something that I really love to play around with. For want of a better term, it's also very democratic. We meet characters that might, that might in a film be simply background characters. In a novel, we may not see them um, in the in the contrast of black and white on the page. I wondered if you think then that a, a straight narrative, maybe that sort of more linear chaptered narrative um, book, does that privilege certain power dynamics? Do we necessarily look for a hero or a lead character? Do we look for a villain and forget that there is a, a community that usually surround these characters? I think that um, you're, you're probably right. Um, I think that um, we, everyone obviously knows the value of community and, you know, having a very good support structure, um, you know, friends, family, you know, colleagues, whatever those relationships are um, that a person has actually in their life. But um, sorry, you're going to have to ask that question again. I was thinking thinking very much about what you just said about the way some like a, a more straight linear narrative um the way it it is structured in a certain way and we have this you know we have sort of narrative theory that might talk to you about the seven core narratives or the hero's journey and and I wondered if that structuring that more linear structuring privileges certain types and we might sort of see that as the hero's narrative so often focuses on a male hero even though that is being challenged or um you know we we get a lot of stories that focus around people of privilege because often these are the people that have the means to be that be at the center of a story and in australiana and in in again what what part i've read of the house of yusuf you are in your storytelling much more able to create narratives whether they be four pages four lines four chapters around characters that might otherwise fade into the background of a more linear narrative 
Yeah, I think the thing with um, a linear narrative, and you can sort of apply this to, to films as well, is that, you know, every every particular um, structure has its advantages and its disadvantages. Um, I know when I first started, you know, my sort of serious writing period, which is probably almost 20 years ago, I tried to write this story and it was these two women writing letters to each other and that is a very confined structure. Um, there's only so much you can do with that. So if you have two people just sitting in a room, you're really limiting your possibilities as a writer. And it takes quite a bit of ability to actually pull that off and make it quite interesting. So I think that the, you know, if we're talking about one big narrative and just like one thread that has a particular advantage also has a particular disadvantage. But what interests me is really um, individuals and very everyday events and connections in communities And so I think having a slightly more flexible structure and something which allows these different perspectives to come through then allows me to really portray a community in a way that I don't think a regular novel can actually do. Mm. Do you have a preference? Do you... Do you have a preference for a structure or a style for loose or more constrained or is it? does the narrative tell you what it needs? I think the story dictates this um, and I think generally I have a sense of the first couple of lines and, you know, one of the things that is greatly that greatly interests me on a technical level is structure. And, you know, I recently read this book by um, Manuel Puig called, you know, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Uh, It came out in the 1970s and essentially it's a conversation between these two two men in a a jail cell. So one is a political prisoner, one is therefore corrupting a minor, and it's basically a conversation and one of the characters is talking about these movies. He really likes these, um, you know, these movies that possibly the other person would like to dismiss. And if I think about that as a, you know, from a sort of writing perspective, to make that into a very fresh and um, innovative and really expansive kind of story, technically you need to be quite good. And, you know, Kiss of the Spider Woman definitely pulls this off. Um And I find that the books that really stay with me that I go back to are the ones that do something very experimental um, and try and tell stories in very, very different ways. I'm going to acknowledge here that I've gone from asking you to challenge ideas of linear narratives and now I'm going to pick a section of Australiana that perhaps does have a more linear narrative because I was intrigued by The Blind Side where you seem to be engaging with, I guess, the city-country divide that can often seem to polarise national discussion in Australia. Um, in, the, in the story, you have a, a group of friends who leave their town of Pillerton for the city. It's a small town. Um, one is, one is a, a, a young man named for the town. His family have the town's name. Only one, though, your narrator returns, and he tells the story of, of Barry, Barry Pillerton. He seems to be telling it to Barry's son. Your narrator both bemoans the loss of values of the, those who left for the city, but the, then also the way the town turns on Barry. I'm not going to talk too much about that because it's fun to leave spoilers for people. <laughs> um, I also note that this story, it, it kind of cautions that names have been uh, changed to protect identities. So that immediately gets me curious. Where did the blind side come from and, and what did you, you want to achieve in this section? Yeah, I um, 
what interests me, and I hope I'm not giving too much away with this, but there are, you know, there's a couple of lines right at the start of the blind side which say your heart one side darkness, two sides blind. I can't remember, but there's definitely two sides blind in there. Mm. And I think that um, most people have a sort of public face Mm. and then there's a sort of very private face, which occasionally is revealed expected in a sort of expected or very unexpected way. Um, And I noticed that when I was chatting to my students, a lot of them did ask me why exactly did you come from Sydney to teach in Tamworth? It's, it was a choice. It's not that I had to go and teach at the school that I taught at. Um, and I do think that there is a very interesting um, contrast between living in a city versus living in the country. And I think there are definitely stereotypes about both groups of people. And I think there is a very insightful comment made by the narrator of the blind side. I'm pretty sure it's, it's well, he, the narrator actually is the one who makes it. And that is um, this comment about people who think that the Blue Mountains is the countryside. <laughs> and I do think that, you know, if we're thinking in terms of the government and the politics and where the spending is, that definitely the cities dominate. And there was also this, Um, conversation I had with this woman who was involved in the, um, well, in a very, in a very early stage with the building of the inland rail. And her comment was, you know, this is the only infrastructure project that is happening in the regions or, uh, or, you know, potentially is happening in the regions. And also if we think about, you know, rural health, which is, um, you know, in terms of access, it's not as good as the cities and if we think also about that a lot of towns did actually run out of water and there were quite a few people who said it that this never would have actually happened in Sydney and I do seem to think that in the recent response to the floods that there was a very big difference to the response in Sydney versus the northern parts of the state so I do think that there is a bit of a difference and I wanted to explore that in in the blind side. It it brings to mind also, and and this was comments of Tony Abbott's way back when he was our PM, um, and he was speaking specifically about Indigenous communities, but he used the phrase lifestyle choices, and and this idea that somehow um, you know living outside of a city is is a lifestyle choice, and that it is not well. I'm going to come back to the word you used at the beginning of our conversation, an ecosystem. There are, there are reasons because of people and land um, and, and simple necessity. I mean, it, you are absolutely right. There is a real sense. That line about the Blue Mountains, I was just, I, I sat there for a second. Going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> there but are the, people who think it is countryside. <laughs> yeah, and there is. And well, we all we all learned about that in the, in the pandemic when what what we're Greater Sydney, <laughs> but this yeah. I, this idea that somehow the regions are um, you know a fun place to visit and stay in an Airbnb and simply there for the enjoyment of you know this huge chunk of the population that lives in a city and just expects the food on their plate and and everything else to just appear out of nowhere. <laughs> I think it's very easy for people to judge how other people live. And, you know, I go back to that sort of comment that I was making earlier about the, you know, sort of um, the control um, the and the government spending and 
there is a difference in terms of how money is allocated. You know, um, I'm from Western Sydney and it's the area I consider to be to be home. And if we think about the population of Western Sydney uh, relative to, you know, the state, you know, it gets a very piddly little amount in terms of the arts funding compared to the rest of the state. But I think there are many other examples of this right across the country. And it, it was definitely at the back of the mind um, when I was writing Australiana. I felt also in the blind side that you, you problematized necessarily how we would see the ideas that we were being presented because your narrator is, is mercurial in his views. And it was really fascinating watching him change and justify the way he was thinking. Again, I'm, I'm particularly about Barry. We have the, the narrator originally moves to the city with his group of friends and embraces that moves back to town and is uneasy um, about the divide. And then even by the end, at the very end, it feels like he is beginning to condemn Barry who, he has sort of he's held Barry up as an emblem of how people don't rally around their mates as they used to. What what did you what was this based on? What did you see? Is there a fundamental hypocrisy, or is this just human nature to to change and evolve in our views? I think views do do change, and I, I you know there are many instances where I can think of you know when I am first presented with something you know, I have this particular idea. And then when you actually consider, you know, a few more details or your views actually do change. I think there is a very interesting dynamic in the blind side and it does have a lot to do with who the story is actually being told to. Um, and I don't want to say more beyond, beyond that because I think um, it very much is about you know, who the audience is and how the story that we actually tell changes depending on who the story, who who is actually listening to the story. Mm, that's a, that is a really, that is a really important point and such an interesting one to engage in a novel where when we, when we sit down with the book, we feel like we, we firmly know who, even if, even if you've never met Yumna Kassab, you feel like there is a very definite person with that name out there who is telling you a story and the way you challenge us to think about alternate tellings. Um, Yumna, I, I realise I've got two more sort of thoughts, questions, ideas I'd like to discuss with you. And really, strangely, they're juxtaposed. One is about the end of the book and one is about the beginning of the book. Sure. <laughs> Which one would you like to talk about first? It feels really. Let's it, talk about the end of the book. Let's talk about the end of the book. I really, I was really curious about the final section, Captain Thunderbolt. Um, in a way, it felt like the perfect evocation of, of this idea of Australiana, the myth of the bushranger hero. It's also, um, it also deals with the strange ways that mythologies are brought up the way they exist in conflict with other mythologies um, that may be remembered, that may be forgotten. What, where did Captain Thunderbolt come from? What did it represent for you in the book? Yeah, Captain Thunderbolt is the bushranger, Captain Thunderbolt, who spent a lot of time, you know, up to no good in the New England region, is a pretty inescapable presence Um in and around, you know, within that actual area. Um, the first week that I was there, uh, I intended to do a road trip from Tamworth to Armadale and I only got as far as Urala, which is about 
20 kilometres short of Armadale. And my, I was actually, uh, the detour happened because of Thunderbolt. You know, I went to the cemetery and there was a, a headstone there which said, you know, gone from site but to memory, to, to memory D. And then I also went to McCrossan's Mill, which has a, a sequence of paintings um, about Thunderbolt's last day. And, you know, that's where I, the that sequence actually started. And it's, I think there is quite a bit of sadness to his story. And one of the things I was asking myself and I was asking other people was, you know, why are we actually obsessed with these bushrangers? I don't particularly understand the obsession. And I do think that, you know, Australiana is probably an ecosystem. It's probably a cycle. It's probably also a mythology. And, you know, if we think about someone like, Ned Kelly, um, the really famous bushranger, um, that, you know, there are the actual facts of his life. So, and, you know, he was born at this time, he died at this time, these are the events of his life. But then there are all these other stories that are told and there becomes this mythology about a character or about this person. And I think in a similar way, something happens also with country. You know, there's actual details, but then there's also... A mythology and but really Thunderbolt I think that being in the area there are so many references to him you know there is his cave there's his rock where he used to hide out um uh, there's also a lot of things named after him and people also in the area do have you know stories you know personal stories about their great great grandparents and encounters with Thunderbolt so he's not just you know uh a character, he is also a living person. And so that's what that last part of the book is about. In a really um, strange act of cross-promotion across the show, about three or four weeks ago, I spoke with Eliza Riley, who has a new book out um, called Sheila's, which looks at women in Australian history. And the very first story is a woman uh, named Marianne Bug. Um, who was married to, to Thunderbolt and um, in, the, in the story <laughs> Eliza sort of raises up Marianne Bug because not only was she apparently supportive and, and, and the reason he escaped from Cockatoo Island but as Eliza puts it she was a whole lot better at bushranging because she didn't manage to get herself killed off rather early and live to the ripe old age of I think 71. So that, I, I mentioned that for no other reason than it is a really interesting intersection of the way mythology versus fact. I mean, if you if you live to a ripe old age, you don't um, you don't get to enjoy that. Uh, you know, in in modern in modern parlance, it'd be musicians in the Twenty Eight Club. You know, Hendrix and um, and the like. You got You got to die young to to get the mythology around you. It seems. Um, and yeah, and yeah, so- I think that. <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to start to fill in the space. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that there is, um, yeah, these characters take on a life of their own and maybe his, you know, final, yeah, he, he, well, his very dramatic end um, does contribute to that to that mythology and why these people are actually remembered. Mm. I wonder also, I'm getting getting sort of into a little bit of narrative theory and, and, and space here, but in terms of the early colony, they had very little uh, knowledge and seemingly even less respect for the people whose land they were occupying, the people whose land they had stolen. Um, 
And so there is almost a treatment of the land as, as being a blank slate and devoid of stories, even though we understand that not to be true. Um, is, there a, is there a sense in terms of mythologies, do you think, that people like bushrangers were o- occupying a space that people were hungry to fill with stories because they were blatantly ignoring the stories that already existed? I think that um, we have a sort of a very European structure that has been imposed on the land. And there is an essay that I've written called The Conquest of Land and Room. And it was written at the same time as Australiana. Um, And the idea is that you have a structure and, you know, you operate within that structure. Um, I also do think of, you know, Charles Darwin, you know, in his travels, as he was, you know, thinking about the theory of evolution, he did stop by Australia and he really didn't think much of the landscape at all. It didn't really, you know, resonate. And I do think that um, there is a sort of particular beauty and a particular harshness actually about the, about the, the country, about the landscape. And I think people who are probably used to, um, you know, more green areas and mountains and lots of lakes may not actually appreciate it or really see the beauty that is actually there. Mm. My final idea, we're going right back to the beginning of the book. Um, and I'd almost, I'd almost forgotten this. This book, is, this book is rich. This book is, I'm going to say it again, I'm stealing from <laughs> you, of course. Um, this book is an ecosystem. And it is, um, we, were talking, we were talking off air before we started, we were talking about bushwalking. And it's so often, you know, you go on an, a, an incredible bushwalk, you see so many things, you might forget little details of flower that you noticed at the beginning of the walk. But I do want to come back to my introduction to Australiana, um, the opening story, and I just had this incredible sense um, that there is, you know, there's a huge absurdist, humorist undercurrent to a lot of what is going on. The story begins with a man who has experienced four break-ins, um, which he relates, which are just seemingly, and we, we, the character who is responsible for these break-ins um, weaves in and out. I believe we even we even have a call back to that character in the Blind Side. Um, but one of the break-ins includes they sit down for tea, and of course they take a spoon, and the spoon is like a talisman reappearing through Australiana. Um, I'm, I'm, like this absurdist sort of uh, side. Am I reading that wrong? Where does it come from? I just I just remember my joy when I read that and I thought, I am in for an absolute treat here. <laughs> yeah, no, there is. I really, I do like things that are very darkly funny and um, I do think there is definitely an element, you know, an element of the absurd to a lot of those stories. I actually had a lot of fun writing the town and there are certain sections involving the couch and also the dickhead and you know there's so many things in that sequence the first sequence that are actually very very funny and very memorable for me and a lot of them are not all of them you know are based around you know very funny little details and how they sort of play out in the community um I, I do love humor and in a story and it's probably yeah, most evident in the town. I'm not sure if it's, you know, in a lot of other things that I've written. I think um, just this is more a comment than a question, but there was there was a question that I, I discarded because you'd already answered um, what I wanted to ask you about. But I did, in that question, I wanted to evoke this sense of 
Australiana feeling like catching up with friends and acquaintances and people that are distant in your life, but when you sit down, whether it's, you know, sit down and have a drink or have a coffee or just meeting in the street and little moments sort of bubble up and you say, oh, do you remember? And then there's a then a story that leads to another story that leads to another story, things that are, are long forgotten or front of mind and you're never quite sure how the other person sits with it. But there was that that really interesting sense of exploration, which in our interpersonal relationship sometimes is absurd, sometimes is dark, sometimes is loving, sometimes is fraught. Um, and it's I, I struggled at the beginning to sort of throw a net over Australiana and give a nice synopsis. But I think if if I could do anything, it would be to say it it has that feel of catching up with friends and allowing the stories to just kind of flow. And it's absolutely beautiful for that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the story of a community. It's And I think that um, in the same way that the House of Yusuf is also the story of a community, you know, there's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of perspectives. And I think also if you do, you know, every person belongs to a community, it belongs to many communities. And I do think that we um, notice very little details about them that might not be readily apparent to other people. And the idea is, yeah, when we do, you know, meet up with other people who know that same community, you know, there's a sort of uh, almost like an, not in jokes, but there are a lot of uh, in references that only people that belong to it actually understand. Mm. It's absolutely terrific. And you know, I am so grateful for the time that you have spent talking about it with me today. It's been wonderful. I'm speaking with Yumna Kassab. We are discussing Australiana. Um, let's use both because if people go into a bookstore and say, can you show me your ecosystem section? They're going to get some puzzled looks. Australiana is an ecosystem. It is also a novel. It is wonderful. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for such fantastic questions. That's it for this great conversation with Yumna Kassab. Yumna's new book is Australiana. It is out now from Ultimo Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch with us. You will find us on the socials. You will find us online. Go to 2SER.com, wherever you want, really. Just look for the handle at Final Draft 2SER. More importantly, if you want to keep listening to the podcast every week, if you want to have it pop up wherever you listen to your podcasts, because we're on, we're on all of them, Apple, Spotify. Just subscribe, whichever app you're listening to us in. There will be a new great conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.